Well, good morning. We are in, uh, yeah, everybody awake? All right, it's 1045. I know it's, it's, it's a slow starting Sunday morning sometimes, but we're so glad you're here. We're in week two of our At the Core series where we're spending these weeks looking at what is at the heart of Great Oaks and what comes out of that heart and how we develop that heart for ministry. So after last week's sermon, I got some questions from some people and one of the resounding questions I kept getting was, when are we gonna find out what we're going to do? When do we get to know what we're gonna do? And I, I love that question. I, if you know anything about me, I'm like, let's go, let's, I'm ready. Let, like now we don't need to sit around and talk about it. Let's just go do something. But I think before we can answer that question, we have to answer the question, who are we? And so as we begin to unpack, I know it can be frustrating as we wait to see what we're going to do, but what I really hope over these next seven weeks, and even as we kind of sit in these, that time in between, like, who are we as a church, as a collective body? Because who we are will determine how we serve, how we love, how we invest, and how we do ministry in our communities and in, with our neighbors and those we love. Now, in an American success-driven mindset, this eats us alive, though, right? But as we kind of begin to process through this, I hope you can come to rest and understand that who you are probably matters more than what you do. And so that's what I want us to kind of begin as we walk through. And to help us understand that, I brought a friend to church today. His name is Jim. And uh, as we talked on the vision team a lot, we talked a lot about Jim and a lot about what Jim would experience as he came to Great Oaks. And so you can imagine that this is Jim's first time at Great Oaks. So, uh, and Jim is coming and he's checking us out. And what I wanna do is walk you through this vision culture pyramid that we created last week and take a look at what happens to Jim as he goes through this, as we start today. So you might remember last week, we talked about our purpose. Our purpose comes straight out of the two greatest commandments, to love God and love people, right? So this, it's why we do what we do. Everything else that comes out of this pyramid comes out of this heart of love or off of this foundation of love. And what we believe about Jim and that is, this is what Jim sees. Jim should walk in and he should see us loving each other, loving him, welcoming him in. We think our purpose is what Jim sees. As you climb that ladder, you get to beliefs. Now, beliefs are these core truths that we, would, we said we'd die over, right? If you remember the circle last week, it was die, defend, discuss. Now, the key is these are hills. They're not hammers, so we don't hit people with them. And we allow grace for people to kind of explore and discover as they go through. But what we want Jim to do as he sees that it, is we want to know where Jim is rooted. So Jim's not going to know that yet, but as Jim hangs out, Jim's going to put down roots and see that this is the, these are the core truths that keep us rooted. And it's the first part of who we are. And as we keep climbing up, we get to values, which are part two of who we are. And values are what create the culture. Now, if you've been around a place that has a good culture, you just feel it when you walk in, right? You can just tell there's something good going on there. And so culture or values will be what Jim 
feels. What's Jim get a sense of? Just that intrinsic, like, oh, there's something going on here. We, you've walked into the room, right? We all have. You've walked into the room where it's tense and nobody's talking about why it's tense. You have no clue why it's tense, but you walked in the room and you know it's tense, right? That's because the values or the breaking of the values in that moment. So we want Jim to feel those, these values that we're gonna unpack today. Well, the first one. And then we talk about mission. And mission is what we do no matter what we do. So this is your quiz. I told you last week, we're gonna have to memorize it. You guys are 1045, so I know you're smarter than nine o'clock or at least you're more awake. It's on the screen behind me. If you don't have it memorized yet, you can say it out loud, all right? And our mission is connecting everyone Oh, nice. You guys were way more ready for that than nine o'clock was. So, uh, so yeah, we want that to be what Jim hears. If Jim hangs out here very long, Jim should hear us saying that almost ad nauseum. Like we should want to make fun of each other for saying it as much as we say it. When you start making fun of me for saying that we're a church that's about connecting everyone with Jesus community and purpose, I will have known that I've said it enough. We want Jim to hear that message and to know that's true. And you might remember last week we talked, these four things, this comes out of the Great Commission, this comes out of the Great Commandment, these are the basic truths of what it is to be a Christian, straight out of Scripture, and each one of these values comes straight out of the truth of Scripture. God determines these four things. We don't get to determine them. And honestly, if you look through the the course of Great Oaks history, none of this has changed. We've put new catchy phrases with it. We've made it new and bright and vibrant, but the mission of this church has always been the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. Strategy and measures has to change a little bit. And measures are how we accomplish our mission. And they have to change because the people we're ministering to are changing, their needs are changing, where they're at is changing. And so we change our strategies to meet them. And our strategy is where Jim goes. So Jim's going to figure out what to do as he goes to these different places and experiences these things. And last is measures. Measures help us see if our strategy is working. The goal of our measures is to help us define and to clearly see if we are becoming more like Jesus. It answers the question, what's it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And this is what Jim becomes. When we get to measures, we're talking about what we hope Jim becomes. So we're gonna talk about values today. We're just gonna let Jim hang out there on the value spot. This pyramid matters. This is not just a marketing idea to help you remember all of these things. The order of this pyramid matters greatly. And I'm gonna tread somewhere that I should tread very lightly but I need to help you understand why this matters. If you have been around Great Oaks for a while, you might have remembered a phrase called 10 and 10. And that might bring up all kinds of emotions in you. And so I just want to, I want to be honest and humble. I don't know what that felt like. I wasn't here. I've just heard it talked about. But I want to show you how 10 and 10 fit in this pyramid and then humbly offer what I think happened. So if if you're like, I don't even know what 10 and 10 is, just go with it. You'll understand in a minute. All right. Your goal, your measure was 10 campuses in 10 years. That was going to be success. We have 10 campuses in 10 years. Your strategy was multi-site. 
We're gonna have lots of different campuses that embrace our values, that embrace all the things, and your mission was helping people take their next step towards God. Right? That's what it was stated. What I think happened, and where I think people got hurt, we took our measures, and we made them our mission. And the only thing that mattered was 10 campuses in 10 years. And it got flipped upside down. And then when it got stressful and people got tired and got pushed to their limits, again, I wasn't here, but what I think happened, we forgot our purpose. We forgot in the midst of the exhaustion that we're supposed to love each other. We forgot that it's not this can't go anywhere and we're never going to meet our measures if we're not loving people where they are today. This matters. Every piece of it matters as we walk up. And it's the culture we want to build as we move forward. But we want to build it the right way. We want to build it in a way that says, hey, everybody's in this together. And the reason I want you to know this is because those of us who stand up here on stage with a microphone are not perfect. And we might forget in the midst of trying to achieve these things, I'm super driven. Ask my wife, she has to live with me. 27 Valentine's Days now, she's still living with me. I forget sometimes that this isn't the end goal. And so if you guys know this, you can remind, we can remind each other and hold each other accountable to love first. So that's why this matters. It's why I'm walking through this. It's not just a cute little gimmick to help you remember something I think is really important. It has meaning behind it. So last week we talked about our mission. You guys are doing a great job memorizing that. Keep working on it. We'll keep testing you throughout the series. This week, we're talking about our values. And before we jump into what those six values are, I think we have to answer the question, what do values do? And our values form guardrails. Guardrails that keep us on track, that make sure we stay on the road, that make sure we keep moving in the right direction, that make sure we don't wreck the car along the way. And the truth is about values, you've probably heard this before, but values build culture and culture eats strategy for breakfast. You can say, say your strategy is this and this and this and this, and if you don't build a culture around it, your strategy will go nowhere. Right? So think about it this way. What if our strategy is that anyone can come and meet with anyone at any time? Right? So you can come in, you can stop in the office, you can meet me. I've got open door policy. And I, we tell you that's our strategy. Jason is always going to be available. And then you stop by and my door's locked. Or you stop by and I'm not here. Or you stop by and I don't have time. All of a sudden, the culture becomes don't talk to Jason. Only certain people have access. We can say all we want. It's open door. Come in all you want. But if you don't experience that, it doesn't matter. We can say we're a place where everybody's ideas hold the same weight. Everyone's ideas matter. But if we don't listen, or if every time you come with an idea, we go, nope, 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 nope. You're going to keep offering ideas? 
Uh uh-uh. The culture we're building drives our strategy home. We've said in our mission statement, everyone. We want to be a place where everyone can connect with Jesus' community and purpose. What if not everyone gets treated the same way? What if only certain people get greeted at the door? What if other people stand in the corner and sit by themselves all the time? We can say everyone all we want. Do you feel it? Does everyone feel it? That's the challenge. This mission statement is not easy. Values are not easy. But I don't think God called us to easy. But he promised to be with us as we walk through it. So what are the six values? Here they are. Unimaginable transformation. We're going to unpack what that means in just a minute. Unassuming authenticity, unhindered faith, unending development, untamed excitement. That means we got to like wake up a little bit on Sunday mornings. We're untamed excitement and uncommon generosity. So as we begin to look at what it means to experience unimaginable transformation, I want to ask you to open your Bibles or your phones with me, and we're going to look in an unexpected place. I'm just going to see how many unwords I can work into this sermon today. We're going to start in a cemetery. Mark chapter 5. So open, grab your Bible or your phone if you got it. Open up to Mark chapter 5. And what we're going to do as we walk through is we're actually going to lay these stories over top of each other. So this story is told in Matthew, it's told in Mark, and it's told in Luke. And I'm going to blend those verses together. So it might be hard, you might be reading and be like, that is not in my Mark. Uh, It's not, it's probably in Matthew or Luke. So we're mixing these verses together to help us see the whole story. Now there's one tricky piece about doing that, and that is that when Matthew tells this story, he says that there's two men. And when Mark and Luke tell the story, they say there's one guy. And some of you are like, I knew it. I knew it. The Bible contradicts itself. You can't believe it. Okay, well, let's take a deep breath. Okay, and realize that this is a minor contradiction. Okay, and it might not even be a contradiction. Because oftentimes, in this type of narrative writing, in that day and time, the predominant person is the only one who's recognized. It would be like, hey, I went to IGA in Metamora today and I saw the Rotans, or I saw Jason. But really, you saw Jason and Corey, but you didn't talk to Corey, you just saw her, but you had a conversation with me. So you go back and you say, I saw Jason, but you really saw the Rotans. You saw both of us. Maybe you saw all four of us. You probably heard it if it was all four of us more than you saw it, but that's a different point. See, it's, the, it's this idea that the main person is the one that is really the key thing, and that's a very common literature thing in this day and age, all right? So that, for those of you who are like, I don't, I don't care, it's okay, you don't have to remember that piece, but the number of men doesn't change the truth of the story either. So let's take a look. I'm actually gonna start reading in Luke, and I'll get to Mark in just a second. So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was coming out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. 
Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that no one could go through that area. I think it's worth just stating, in the world we live in today, this story seems almost unbelievable, right? Like, and we try to explain some of this stuff away. We go, oh, that is an ancient document. If they would have had modern medicine, we could have gotten this guy some treatment. He could have went to a couple counseling sessions, maybe been hospitalized for a while, and we could have taken care of it, right? He just has some mental health stuff. Maybe. Or maybe there's something deeper, something spiritual going on here. Regardless of where you fall on that, mental health that's undiagnosed because they didn't know what they were talking about, spiritual beings, I think there's something supernatural going on in this story. And we're going to begin to unpack some of that. But more than that argument, what I want you to see is this guy's existence. Can you imagine? There are caves in the side of these cliffs where they would walk in and they would bury people in the walls of the sides of the cave. They dig up a hole, shove a body in, fill it back in with dirt. This guy is living surrounded by dead corpse. Anybody want to just go spend tonight in a cemetery? No, thank you. No, thank you. Not, not my thing. That's where he's living. He's completely isolated from society. He's unable to sleep. I don't know about you. When I don't sleep, no one. Once we, they need to isolate me from society when I don't sleep. It's not a good thing. This guy's been unable to sleep. He's stripped of his clothing. He's naked. He's fashioning rocks or sharp, sharp edges out of the rocks to cut himself, maybe to try to end his life because the ter- ter- turmoil is so much, maybe just to end the pain. What would it be like to encounter someone like this. I want to bring this as best I can into our era, right? So I want you to think about living in Germantown, Metamora. Maybe you've been to Black Partridge Park, right? To get to Black Partridge Park, at least from my house, you have to drive by Oakwood Cemetery. So just imagine taking your family out for a hike or a mountain bike ride in Black Partridge. You drive by and there's a naked dude sitting in the cemetery cutting himself and howling. What would you do? What would the rumors around town be like? Can you imagine? What would people say about the guy who lives in the cemetery? Where would this guy ever be welcome? He'd be a danger to both himself and society. And my guess is the talk of all the village boards and meetings would be, what are we going to do about the guy who lives in the cemetery? Maybe we just build a higher wall. But it's to that guy that Jesus shows up. 
Take a look at Mark 5, beginning in verse 6. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed down before him. With a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirit begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. There happened to be a herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirit begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the entire herd of 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The, herd, the herdsmen fled to the nearby town and surrounding countryside. Anybody else not going to flee? Like, if you're watching this thing? People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who'd been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, fully clothed, and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. If you look at the backstory of this whole thing, Jesus has his disciples get in a boat. They go across the Sea of Galilee into a storm, they essentially talk to this guy, get back in the boat and go back across the, the sea. The only reason they went to this place is this one guy. And it's significant of where they went because it's the first time Jesus leaves the Jewish community. You wouldn't have pigs in a Jewish community. He's entered a Gentile area, non-Jewish area. For the first time, they're going to hear the message of the truth of the gospel. And as this guy comes running out, Jesus already cast the demon out of him. And we're not told that in any of the three gospels, what he says. But it's clear that Jesus has already told the demon to leave. And so now the demon has a conversation with Jesus. And over the course of that conversation, we find out there's not one, but Legion is a Roman battalion of soldiers. It's possibly 6,000. So we know, are there 6,000 demons in this guy? We know there's more than one. So somewhere between two and 6,000. And the thing I find interesting they're terrified. They've outnumbered Jesus. No matter how many are there, we know he's outnumbered. But they're terrified and they're begging. And then Jesus gives them permission. Permission to leave. Jesus sees a human being created in the image of God, isolated, tormented, humiliated, and he meets them there. And he transforms their life. That same transformation, church is available today. We chose the word unimaginable because when you read these stories, it's like, Oh my gosh, 
This guy was like breaking metal shackles off his wrists, snapping chains, running naked, howling at the moon, and he meets Jesus, and all of a sudden he's sitting there, fully dressed and calm. That's unimaginable transformation. Why? Because Jesus loves us too much to let us stay the same. Where have you or where do you feel trapped? Where's that part of your life that you're like, I want this gone? Jesus, take it. I'm tired of struggling with it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to be prideful, but I keep being prideful. I don't want to be selfish, but I keep being selfish. What is the stuff inside our lives that we're like, I don't know how to get over this? And we need Jesus to step in and transform our lives. You can't clean yourself up. I can't clean myself up. I can't bring on my own transformation. We keep presenting this perfect, polished image of ourselves, right? Everything's great. What's it look like below the surface? Jesus has the power to transform our lives if we'll let him. Sometimes, That transformation is instantaneous. Just like that, just like this guy's story, it changes. My guess is for a lot of us in the room today, though, that's not the way we've seen transformation work. I prayed a prayer when I was six years old to ask Jesus into my life. You know, I just left my heroin needles on my dresser that morning, decided to follow Jesus at six. That transformation has been gradual. Transformation has been Jesus showing me over and over again what I need to give up. What needs to change? What would you say? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, how has Jesus transformed your life? I'm going to give you homework. Sorry, students. More homework even at church, right? This is not fun. Here's a paragraph I want you to think about what it would look like to fill in the blanks. Before Jesus transformed my life, I was blank and blank. When Jesus stepped into my life and I became a follower, I felt blank and blank. Now my purpose is blank. How would you fill in those blanks? No copying off my paper, but I want to let you understand how I would fill those in. Before Jesus transformed my life, I was fake and angry. When Jesus stepped in, I felt seen and loved. And now my purpose is to live in a way that makes Jesus attractive to those who don't know him. You see, I played games. For a long, long time, I played games with church. And I could be who the people in church wanted me to be, and I could be who the people outside of church wanted me to be, and I could chameleon all of it. But when I met Jesus, he saw all of that. 
And he loved the good and the bad. And he took my anger. And now that's the story I get to tell. This little exercise helps us see how our lives have changed. What's changed? But it also allows us to invite other people into this transformation because we're building a culture of unimaginable transformation. Because Jesus loves us too much to let us stay the same. Let's go back to our story because I want you to see how this one guy's life changed a lot of people. So take a look at Mark chapter 5, verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things that Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. You see, Jesus, this guy thought, Jesus healed me, Jesus transformed my life, so now I get to go be one of his followers. I get to get in the boat. I get to see what the disciples see. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. I transformed your life so you can go tell your family about the transformation that you've experienced, about what I've done, about the mercy you were shown, the love and the grace and the forgiveness that was extended to you, about the impact I had on your life. And so this guy goes. Mark says he goes to the 10 towns all around, otherwise known as the Decapolis in that time. Church, who needs to hear our story? Maybe you're like, there's nothing super great or super crazy about my story, Jason. I, I'm just, I grew up in the church. Okay. Were you ever selfish? Ever living, living in a broken marriage that you just wanted out of and you'd given up all hope on? Full of pride, addicted to porn? You fill in your list. But then you met Jesus and he turned your selfishness into generosity. He did things inside your marriage that you'd given up on and never thought were possible. He humbled you. He freed you from addiction. Our friends need to hear those stories. And some of you are thinking, listen, I've given up. My friends and family members, I've told them who Jesus is. I told them what he expects of their life. I've told them what to do. They don't care. Jesus isn't going to transform their life. Let me suggest a different approach. Instead of telling them all the ways they've fallen short, what if we stepped back and we were silent towards them and just started praying and praying and praying? And what if instead of telling them all the things they needed to change, we told them all the things Jesus had changed inside of us? And they got to see us live that out. Maybe instead of trying to fix them, we need to invite them to come experience the transformation that Jesus has for them.
because I don't want you to miss what happened when this guy who was living among the tombs, when his life was unimaginably transformed. Catch the end of this in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. It says, Jesus left Tyree, went back to Sidon. Those are two towns, you don't have to know where they are. Going back to the Sea of Galilee, to the region of 10 towns. Sound familiar? Jesus returned to the Sea of Galilee and climbed a hill and sat down. A vast crowd brought to him people who were lame, blind, crippled, those who couldn't speak, and many others. They laid them before Jesus and he healed them all. The crowd was amazed. Those who hadn't been able to speak were talking. The crippled were well. The lame were walking. The blind could see again. And they praised the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They've been here with me for three days and they've had nothing left to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they will faint along the way. Where did all these people come from? Jesus went back across to where one guy was. And that one guy did what Jesus told him to go do and told everybody about the life change and the mercy he'd experienced. And now there are thousands. If you continue reading that passage, it's a second miraculous feeding where Jesus takes seven loaves, one fish, feeds 4,000 men plus women and children, and there's seven baskets of leftovers. Just do a little bit of math. If it's a family of three, We'll just assume family of three average. That's 12,000 people that in three days Jesus has been ministering to, preaching to, because one guy had his life changed. Do we believe that's possible today? It's still the same Jesus. He hasn't changed it's the same Holy Spirit who indwells us, who indwelled the disciples in the book of Acts. When we've experienced unimaginable transformation, when we've seen God do stuff in our lives, we have a story to tell. We worship and serve a God of unimaginable transformation. He's been doing it all through the course of history, all through the pages of scripture, is unimaginable transformation. I want to reshare one more passage with you out of Ezekiel. The Israelites are enslaved at this point. They're there because they've disobeyed God. They haven't done what God asked them to do. And so he sends them into captivity. And as I read this passage, I want you to see one last time who does the transformation. Because church, it's not our job to go help people get their lives cleaned up way above our pay grade. And they'll never be able to do it on their own. It's God's work. Listen to this passage, Ezekiel 36, 25. Then, this is God speaking, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my obligations. It's God's work. He just does it through us. Unimaginable transformation, church. Because Jesus loves you and me and our neighbors and our community and our world 
too much to let us stay the same. If you're here today and you're like, uh, I've never experienced that kind of transformation. First time I've ever heard about Jesus or that he could even do this for me. In just a moment, we're going to take communion. I'll explain what that is in just a second. But there are going to be people in the back of the room, the back corners, who would love to pray with you, who would love to talk with you, who would love to help you understand the transformation that's available to you through Jesus. So in just a minute, everybody's going to stand up. Most of them are going to come forward. If you haven't experienced that transformation, please don't leave here without talking to somebody today. We would love to help you take that first step of connecting with Jesus. And we want to be a community where you can discover your purpose. Church, what's our transformation story? How's Jesus changed your life? Who do you need to share that with? Let's pray. God, sometimes we come to talk and really all we have to say is thank you. Thank you that you took each and every one of us just the way we are. And you loved us just the way we are. But you didn't let us stay there. You transformed our lives. You healed our brokenness. You welcomed us in. God, give us courage. Courage to share that story with those around us. Courage to meet other people where they are. To allow you to work in and through our lives to transform us and them. God, help us stop striving to do this on our own. But to rest in your transformation of our lives. We love you, Father, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.